Hey everybody, welcome to today's show featuring Peter Pickett. This is HFL 79. Holy cow, we're coming up on 100 episodes pretty soon. Hey, I'd like to give a quick shout out to Andrew Hitz of the Brass Junkies. Andrew and I had a really great conversation over the weekend. Super smart guy and willing to help out. I've been asking him for some guidance. I respect his podcast, even though both of those hosts are a little bit insane. But if you haven't checked out The Brass Junkies or Andrew's other podcast, The Entrepreneurial Musician, you should check those out today. Just a reminder before we get into today's interview, if you could go to Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcasts, please leave a rating and a comment. That will help the visibility of this podcast and help us grow. Now, here's Aaron to get us into today's episode. Continued interviews from Studio HFL are made possible through the support of Messina Covers, Eastman Music Company, Pickett Blackburn, S.E. Shires, and through the generosity of Patreon subscribers. Trumpet players can be kind of picky when it comes to cases, perhaps even more so than other brass instrumentalists. If you have an idea for a custom case, then Messina Covers has your solution for completely custom case designs, even down to crazy color schemes. Let's not forget about options for mouthpiece pouches, or pretty much anything you'd want to keep protected in a custom case. Check them out at MessinaCovers.net. If you're looking for excellence in trumpets, trombones, horns, and tubas, you need look no further than the Eastman Music Company and S.E. Shires. Eastman offers a complete line of brass instruments, from the beginner all the way up to the professional. And you know they're invested in creating a quality product when the legendary Doc Severinsen helped design Eastman's beginner trumpet model. You can find more information about the Eastman Music Company at EastmanWinds.com, and you can learn more about the S.E. Shires line of instruments at SEShires.com. Pickett Blackburn has established themselves as a top-tier resource for trumpet players. If you haven't had a chance to try any mouthpieces available through Pickett, you can check them out online at PicketBlackburn.com. And on the Blackburn side of Pickett Blackburn, it would be worth your while to check out their incredible line of trumpets endorsed by such great musicians as Vince DiMartino. Be sure to check them out at PicketBlackburn.com, and that's Pickett with two T's. And before today's interview, just a reminder that you too can be a financial supporter for this podcast by subscribing at patreon.com slash studiohfl. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash studiohfl. There are four tiers of support, and you can choose the one that best fits your budget. Your support will help offset the cost of production for this podcast and would be greatly appreciated please consider becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And now, on to today's interview with your host, Larry Powell. I'm here in Indy. You're in, are you in Lexington? Mm-hmm, yep. Are you at the shop today? I am. I've never been there. <laughs> and I've got to make my pilgrimage there at some point. Indeed, yes. This is my office slash IT room slash uh, mouthpiece measurement and things like that, so... I hide back in the corner. <laughs> You're the, what is it? The chef, cook, or chief cook, bottle washer, whatever that saying is. Right, right? And, and head janitor or something like that. Yeah. So what are things like these days? I, I know last time I talked to Eric, it was like you guys were trying to work from home as much as possible and schedule individual time into the end of the shop. Yeah, so let's see. April, May, I guess it all runs together. So yeah, Kentucky had a mandatory closure for non-essential businesses. 
And I didn't think it was right to try to claim to be an essential business. And we closed down for what, seven weeks, I think, something like that. Wow. And, and we did work from home and made sure the trash got taken out and the roof didn't leak and things like that. But we didn't really make anything. And of the few stock orders that we shipped that kept things going, Near the end of that period, we did a little bit of facilities reorganization because frankly, everybody was a little checked out. That was a difficult time. And uh, between homeschool all of a sudden, and (laughs) most of us are tied up with identity at work kind of thing. And here that's being taken away from you. So we were all a little fuzzy brain. So we took that time to do a little reorganization, clean up, move some stuff around. That was a nice way to get back in. And then when we got back in, that was in the summer, July, it was pretty hot and heavy quickly because we had a backlog before we closed and then things have picked up and it's been good and a little bit more steady. And I think finally in the past, gosh, I'd say past couple of months, it's been a little bit more normal and feels more normal despite all the stuff that continues to to happen around us. So here's the question of the day. When are you going to start manufacturing either Picket or Blackburn masks? <laughs> All right, so I'm, I'm gonna get I'm gonna get a sharpie and I'll just write on yeah. here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We thought about or, it. It's one of those things where we could buy branded everything, mask and hand sanitizer and branded mouthpiece, anti-COVID spray, and at some point right. it feels a little tacky, but it's it's certainly something we ought to consider. You know, we've only crossed paths a handful of times, and usually at an ITG conference. Yeah. So this is my first time to really get a chance to sit and talk to you and and get to know you a little bit. Of course, I'm interested in how things got started. But first, I want to find out, you know, more about you as a musician. Are you a trumpet player? What what were your original? Were you going to teach? Were you going to perform? Are you doing that? Or fill me in on that. Sure. So I I came up through a a very arts-rich primary school. So started playing in fifth grade and, and played through middle school and high school. And like a lot of musicians, I started on piano. And like most kids, I hated piano. And so I struck a deal with my parents that I would start trumpet lessons and continue that more seriously if I could drop piano. So I did that and that stuck pretty well through high school. And we had a very competitive marching band in Virginia, uh, Charlottesville High School. And that was very healthy. And then I ended up going to Virginia Tech uh, for engineering. And so I finished a mechanical engineering undergrad and a master's in mechanical engineering and acoustics. All the while, I also did a trumpet performance degree there as well. So it was a great montage of interest all put together and with a nice big campus. There were plenty of opportunities for all of that. And so I got to play a whole lot. I, I had a great time in engineering school. And But then at the end of that is I had to make a choice on whether you're going to be a trumpet player or go get the engineering day job. And so I, I almost stayed in Roanoke and Blacksburg and Southwestern Virginia there because I had been playing there for a while and gotten all the right list and that kind of thing. Probably could have made it work, but I chose instead to come out and work for the Lexmark Corporation here in Lexington. Computer printers, right? Nothing right. To do with music. And it was an acoustics job that I was after, but I didn't end up getting that, but I was there anyway. And it turned out that Lexington was a very fortuitous landing. So close to Chicago and Atlanta, Northern Virginia, uh, Northeastern, it was amazingly well located. And so, after meeting a bunch of musicians that happened to be engineers there, it was it was just a matter of time before this started. I, I'm intrigued by the engineering part of that. It, it, what point growing up did you get an interest in that, and what was it that 
was it trying to do a derby car for scouts or what what sparked that interest oh man my, my pine wood derby cars were terrible i was no good <laughs> at that and my, my dad was an electrical engineer and so i certainly had some of that baked in from an early age but i was much more hands-on build stuff take stuff apart very visual mechanism kind of stuff and so when i got to engineering school at virginia tech they really wanted you to make a choice on what field of engineering uh, that you did basically at the end of the first semester and my dad was electrical and i had my share of electrical uh, stuff going on in high school watching him and stuff but mechanical was really where it was at and most mechanical engineers are fairly well versed across all disciplines so fluid mechanics i think aeronautical engineering mechatronics or electrical engineering you get all the electronic side and for, for those of us that, that did a lot of programming, you get the computer science aspect in there too, and computer engineering. And so it was a much wider uh, field of study for me. It was much more interesting and, and it did stick. And of course, all of that is applicable now with the yeah. shop, right? Yes, it is. And that's where it's one of these things where if you look back on my biography one day when we sell millions of those, look very well-planned and rather convenient, but a lot of it is just luck and it's being at the right place at the right time. I ended up at Lexmark designing computer printers. That doesn't seem very logical, but part of my training there and my work was writing software tools to support our work. And part of the thing that makes this place work is the writing of software tools to make things more efficient, make them more accurate, make them easier. And a lot of that simply would not have happened if I hadn't gone through a lot of that software training. And that's just one little thing that happened to be at the right time, at the right place, which you see the relationship between tools like that and what you're trying to get done. It's, oh, that would make that easier, wouldn't it? And so, again, a lot of it is just very fortuitous and in timing uh, and such, but a lot of the skills have come together to create a little bit better, um, better system overall. I've talked to Fred Powell. I've talked to Carl Hammond and Terry Warburton, all you guys who are terrific musicians to begin with, but all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, you transition and you end up in this where I think, of course, being a musician has certainly benefited what you're doing now yes. because you understand the other side of it. If you were trying to design this stuff and you had no idea how to actually make it function as the operator, <laughs> how would you either know how to design it, but also how would you know how to interact with the players on the other side. Uh, that's an incredibly important point. And so when we started, the people that I hire, and it's, it's really true even today, they're all musicians. Because out of the gate, everybody had to go to a trade show. And you can't take an engineer, you can't take a corporate business <laughs> guy to ITG and have him sell a mouthpiece, or even just <laughs> right. hang out and talk with you about what it's like to play trumpet. You have to experience that. And that street credibility is instantaneous to get your foot in the door, if nothing else. Of course, then you have to have a good product, like all the folks that you named do. But a lot of those guys would have never seen the light of day if they hadn't been some kind of brass player and able to speak the terminology and to say, oh, man, I know exactly what you mean by that. And we continue to learn new words and new vocabulary talking to different musicians. But the fact is, we're all coming from some kind of a common place, which is, is huge. And, and a common place too, and I don't know if this applies to you, is if you go back, I think maybe to Shilke, mm -hmm. right? Is there's this lineage of now instrument mouthpiece makers that have come through or Getson, right? That have, have yes. branched off on their own and, and now started. Were you ever part of 
a, a different company and apprenticed or something along that line there? That's where I really worried about at the beginning because I did not come up through that. So again, I was working corporate for a bunch of years and started out behind my garage just making trumpet buttons because uh, I like to make stuff. It was mechanical and it was a love of making that got me into it. And oh, by the way, there's this field that you enjoy being part of the music business. So I feel like I got started relatively late and I did not have the connections out of the gate that a lot of these guys had from being in major symphonies or working for major companies. And I think that's probably held me back a little bit. And so we've worked really hard just to be more places to catch up. That's what it means to go to ITG. It's not so much to sell things, but you need to be seen, you need to be included in, you need to feel like you're included in the industry as a whole. And you'd mentioned the people that you hire. Eric Murine seems to be one of the most savvy people there is. And I've not talked to him about trumpets. I've talked to him about mouthpieces. When you hire people like that, then that helps accommodate for what you're saying that you had missed or what you felt like you had lacked. That's right. And you need people like that. You need trumpet players to talk to trumpet players and, or at the worst case, a brass player to talk to a brass player. There's just a camaraderie. There's a language. There's just a a fundamental understanding that you get instantly and you feel a connection instantly versus talking to generic salesperson. Anybody can sell a 3C, but you'll probably buy a 3C from somebody that you end up having something in common with. Yeah. I, I want to back up for a second. You said you were making trumpet buttons. Mm-hmm. Can you clarify that? Are you talking a, a valve cap or I, like... Yeah, just, just heavy bottom caps and, and your finger buttons. It was something that I was playing on Yamaha equipment and you're sitting in your, your local community band counting rest and you're thinking, man, I could do this. And so you go home and you, you, you get some brass and you put it on your little lathe, your hobby cheap lathe, and you make something, you make one button and you go, man, that was hard. And like, I guess I got to make two more. They make two more and you figure it out. And it's, I mean, it's not rocket science, but it was something that, you, know, you feel ownership of you made this and again it's not it's not a part that's going to go to the moon or anything like that but it was something that i made and very decorative so out of the gate it, it was truly just an aesthetic passion kind of thing and you say hey man that looks great can you make me a set of those okay so two hours later after you make another set of buttons you're like ah man that was hard and that worked for several years except trumpet buttons were like we're buying 22 inch rims for your Honda Civic. Damn, you look cool, but you're only gonna buy one set and then you're done. You're never gonna buy another set. So as a business, it was interesting, but it probably wasn't sustainable. Whereas the design space, the product space for mouthpieces and ultimately horns is enormous, right? That's why everybody is in business and everybody does fine. Everybody has a little unique space, philosophy, all valid and there's room for everybody. It's a very collegial industry. And that was also nice. I'll echo that. Every time I go to a conference, I, I, especially the last four or five years, it has just been, and trumpet players get such a bad rap for being you know, the <laughs> egotistical. And some of us are, but you know, a lot of us in a good way. But the collegiality is great. Shoot, something you just had said, I was gonna go back to, that was brilliant. It, it, oh, oh, philosophy. Where did you come up with a philosophy for Pickett Blackburn? What, or what is the current uh, mission statement, I guess? Sure. I, so, hate, uh, I really hate that word. You know? <laughs> mission statement. 
Yeah. From the very beginning, certainly as a trumpet player and one who has gone through zillions of mouthpieces and tried everything under the sun, just like every other hardware junkie, you have your personal preference. And so to Terry's credit, I was playing Warburton mouthpieces. It was a, it was a 5M, I believe, or a 4MC, I don't remember. But it, it felt good and it was fine. It was great. And so when we had some machinery to make the trim kits, the buttons and the bottom caps, we, like I said, the business was not sustainable, so I had machine time. And so I said, oh, I'm going to make a mouthpiece. So I took Terry's mouthpiece and I did my very best to copy that mouthpiece to prove to myself that I could make something as good as Terry. And it was fine. Great. I copied his 5MD, whatever. That's not how to run a mouthpiece company. Terry already does that. It does fine. But Vince DiMartino and Mark Claudefelter, who were nearby at University of Kentucky and uh, Center University, as soon as Vince finds out that you're making stuff, he is in your face. <laughs> and he's hey, we got to try this, and I want to do this, and let's try this. I've always wanted to do this. And that's where some of the first mouthpieces really came from. And so he had 85,000 mouthpieces and all sorts of ideas. And all I had to do was listen. And Vince is going a mile a minute. You pick up the bits and pieces that you think are important and you put those together. And after it probably took a couple years that we finally made something that he thought, that's, ah, that's good. That's right down the middle. That's going to work for me. And that's really where a lot of the first designs came from. It was a unique combination of dozens of different things and listening, which is what musicians should be doing. That's how we have adapted. And in my opinion, maintain relevance because we're not stuck in this is the solution we make. This is what you need to play. I don't know what you need to play. I, I've never heard you play. I've never seen your teeth. I don't know how the horn sits on your face. I don't know what this is doing to you or what it's not doing to you. That's why you go to ITG. I need to see it on your face. I need to hear you play. I need to hear what you're thinking. And that's what it's about. And that's how we've adapted through the years. Because frankly, any mouthpiece might be good for you and it's not good for me. Neither one of us is wrong. It's just the way it is. And if Terry's stuff works great for you and our stuff doesn't, great. More power to you. More power to Terry, right? That's what I like about this business. There's not one size or one thing that is truly better than everybody else. Uh, it's, again, very egalitarian distributed market. Yes. However, <laughs> the competition drives excellence. It drives yeah. innovation, right? And yeah. so nobody can just sit back and rest on, hey, my product is just the fine or just fine the way it is. My line doesn't need to be expanded any further than it is. Mm -hmm. I don't need to offer any more options than I offer. Because as soon as the next guy does any of that, now you're like, oh crap. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I gotta keep up. Or I have to be the one innovating. I have to be the one at the front. Yes. So we innovate in two ways. One is on the front end, like you're talking about. So we've introduced a number of models, of course, since the very first ones that we worked with Vince. We work with a bunch of major artists. Alan Bazzuti shows up and he can't play the Vince mouthpiece. So we make him something else and we learn by listening. And so these signature models are not so much an effort for endorsements per se, but it's to get very astute, self-aware artists to describe to you what they're feeling. They all describe that much better than we do. And it's very intriguing to hear what they say and about different aspects of the mouthpiece that work and don't work for them. As you might expect, there are themes in that are common. But then also, I come from a very much more classical trained trumpet side. So when a lead player shows up, you know, I don't have a lot of vocabulary 
to to discuss with that or a lot of experience on lead mouthpieces that have come through the ages so we have to listen to them try new things try new aspects and then that's where the commercial line came from it was a little bit different take on what we normally do it's not just a piccolo trumpet mouthpiece it's a commercial lead mouth so we have to really listen on the front end of that of that conversation the other place that makes I believe us different is on the back end. So I spend a lot of time on the process of how we make things, the process on how we take orders, how work flows in the shop. It's just a factory at some level, but we have to be a factory that is extremely capable, but also flexible because we're not making 1 million 7C mouthpieces. You know, we might make one 7C and then we make one of a hundred other mouthpieces. And if we were not efficient, we would probably be out of business even if we had the greatest product because you just can't operate inefficiently and stay in business. So that innovation is very important so that when you show up and want to do a custom mouthpiece, I'm not resentful. Uh, you really want me to make a custom mouthpiece? Who do you think I am? Oh, we make custom mouthpieces. We don't want to have that attitude. And so we try to make it easy to work with people on the phone, work with us when we're in the shop and in the back end, make it easy to manufacture so that it's more fun for me and it's more fun for you. My wife is a screen printer. Ah, and ah. the big companies, right? You have to have a minimum order because they have to burn the screen. There's an art design and all that. Our shop, which is down in the garage, her shop, I should say, <laughs> is she's she'll take large orders, but she's also, look, I'll accommodate. If you want one shirt, I'll make one shirt. Who's going to do that? And so nobody wants uh, to do that. Now, she doesn't want to do that all the time because there's a lot of work that goes into that. But doing that sort of thing, I'm trying to relate this to what you're talking about. It's like that brings awareness because then that one person who got that great piece of uh, equipment from you or that really nice shirt from her is going to talk about it and spread the word. And yes, right. So that all of that's important, of course, with PR, right? Yes. And in fact, some of our biggest uh, customers that we manufacture mouthpieces for their own company, OEM manufacturing, are people that we made a single mouthpiece for, and we didn't know who they were. But like you say, we were easy to work with, we were pleasant to work with, we were fun to work with. And that word of mouth is the slowest marketing there is but it's the highest quality that you can get. And that right. is what foundations are built on. And, that, and that's true probably across the entire music industry. You know, you're a great trumpet player and you show up in Chicago. I don't really care who you are. Just show up for the damn gig and play. And you do that and you establish a reputation for yourself after a period of time. So you've got the musical background, right? You've got the trumpet degree and performing experience. You've got an engineering background but where'd the business sense come from? <laughs> business sense, man, I love to spend money. Just ask my wife. <laughs> now it's part of the business side is just process. I mentioned the manufacturing process. The business process is really the same kind of beast. Think about what any business does. We buy stuff, we buy raw materials, we convert them into a finished product and we sell them to you. And so we have to spend money on businessy things. We have to collect money from customer things and we have to make all that work. I'd like to say it's not rocket science, but it is so messy. It is unbelievably messy, uh, ridiculously. And so I, I, I have a, I just want to wage war on the whole financial process and how business is run because it's too complicated. And part of our efficiency in the background is wrapped around some of that effort so that it's not so damn hard 
just to exist. You want to reduce that overhead, that time burden. It's, it's not even money. It's just time. It just sinks your time, you know, balancing books and writing checks and all those things that you have to do to be in business, but that are not a good, valuable use of your time. So I enjoy that aspect, even though it's frustrating at times, because when it works, oh man, you walk in, you get your coffee and you just get to make stuff. That's where it pays off. And, and that's still really where you are, right? That's, you want to be hands-on still with making the mouthpieces and trumpets, right? And that's, you're not delegating necessarily the entire thing to other people. Help. I do have, so I would like to delegate more. And the reason is there are lots of things that I can work on that I probably bring more value to than just you know sweeping the floor per se. Now there's nothing here that I haven't done. And I tell all my employees that I will never ask you to do something that I'm not willing to do or have done uh, or haven't done before. And part of the business aspect, it takes time to refine financial processes. And in the, it's just a time sink. Setting up a new bank or setting up a new ACH kind of payment system, it's a pain in the butt. But after that gets done, it, things are going to be so much easier. What used to take 10 clicks and four phone calls now takes one click. Ah, man, it's just heaven. And suddenly the capacity of your organization scales. And that's what really resonates with me because then the place becomes much more self-sustaining as opposed to if we stop paddling, we sink. No, I want to stop paddling and float and be fine. And so in a lot of regards, we are there. And that's just out of brute force and getting through a lot of those changes. But I would like to spend more time on developing more marketing materials, more presence, more unique images to the outside kind of thing. Just because again, that we don't share nearly as much as we should. And we're doing way more things than we tell people about. And there's no reason other than there's just not time. So you've got the mouthpiece line, Picket Mouthpieces. I wonder where that name came from. <laughs> and of course, I know that even expanding the, the existing line, like you're making, are they called replicas of the, the Baroque mouthpieces, but with a modern shank? Mm -hmm. You're expanding in that direction. But you're also, and you can ask me to edit this out if you want to, but I know now that, that you're providing mouthpieces to Shires mm -hmm. to put into there. Is that a secret or is that out? Nope. No, no, that's the well-known knowledge. So that's okay. called OEM, Original Equipment Manufacturing, and we do that for dozens of companies. Uh, okay. And with each, with each company, we allow them to say if they want that Picket makes their stuff, or some want to appear as uh, self-contained, which is totally fine. It's not going to hurt my feelings. And then on the flip side, some people uh, don't want us to tell others that we make their stuff for them. Uh, so Shires can come to us and say, we don't want anybody knowing that we're associated with them. Now, thankfully in their case, it's a, it's been a very collegial and friendly uh, relationship since the beginning. And it's been very healthy for both. I think I think a lot of a lot of the Shires development has been here recently. We, I guess, gosh, it's not been that recent. I uh, did all of their tuba line for their new tubas, which have been a, a great success. So that's pretty exciting. Okay. so. When it comes to mouthpieces, what's your most, what's the best thing that you do for a mouthpiece? Is it starting from the blank or is it the cup or is it just putting it in the box and ready to, <laughs> ready to go? <laughs> what's the best thing that we do? You personally. What, oh. Yeah. And what do I do? So our mouthpiece department is made up of me and Zach Whitson and in terms of manufacturing. So every mouthpiece that comes out of here, either Zach or I made and, and programmed. And so Zach makes a lot of the low brass. He runs a bigger machine that makes tuba and trombone. 
and then I run a smaller machine that makes the majority of our trumpet products. And so we manufacture everything and then we pass that along down the line in an efficient manner, hopefully, to our buffing group. So we have a little bit of automated buffing and we have people buffing. And the people buffing side is probably the most, that's the most destructive part of any process in the music industry. I could produce perfect mouthpieces all day and whoever's in the buffing room is grumpy that day and hasn't had any coffee could ruin every one of them. And so that's, that's a very important part of the process. And so we have enough three people that work in there and keep that going. I hadn't thought about this question, but I'm going to ask it. Screw rim mouthpieces or top. Yep. Uh, I understand if you make them separately from the beginning, but how in the world do you take a one piece mouthpiece and turn it into a two piece? <laughs> so I, the way I do that is I scan it on the machine behind me and then I make two new parts. So I never oh. cut the mouthpiece. Again, this is, goes back to your previous question about where I came up, where I grew up per se in the music industry. A lot of these guys were custom craftsmen that took your mouthpiece and cut the rim off and threaded it for rims or, or whatever. I've never done that. And people thumb their nose at me and say, you're not a real mouthpiece maker. In that regard, probably not. However, I'm also not destructive when we do custom work. And so we can replicate mouthpieces extremely close and dial them in so that they're just about the same within reason. And then we can put a screw rim, we can put a plastic rim, we can open up the backboard, we can change the weight. All those things then become digitally possible as opposed to, I skeletonized your mouthpiece, but I can't put that metal back on. So you guys have a mildly successful other side of the business here, right? <laughs> of course, yeah, I'm being facetious on that, but Blackburn, Mm -hmm. Already a great product uh, to begin with, but how did you acquire and when did you acquire Blackburn? So after the ITG in uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Cliff Blackburn and Buddy Blackburn asked my wife and I to go to lunch. It was just a, we're really exhausted and we just want to get out of a noisy place and go downtown and eat lunch. So we're eating lunch and Cliff is saying, I thought about retiring sometime soon here. You want to do Blackburn trumpets? Absolutely. completely out of the blue and so that started the conversation now it took six or seven years from that date to get to i think that was 2010 or 11 to get to our acquisition which was in 2016 and during that time that was a struggle because we had to figure out financially if we could do it if it made sense uh, if we could actually physically make blackburn trumpets and they would be the same because I mean, we all know stories of acquisitions and transitions that have not gone well the brand lives on, but the legacy is tarnished. So that was very important to me because what I didn't want to be was a mediocre transition. And so that first year, 2016 and really 2017 were incredibly tenuous because we were able to make Blackburn bells and that was probably the biggest thing, but there are 99 other parts on a trumpet and you had to make sure all that was the same. And so that first year and a half was pretty treacherous. Now, thankfully the market didn't expect much. Here's this kid going to carry on Cliff Blackburn's legacy. Ha, yeah, good luck with that. And so there was a lot of PR that had to be done to ensure that when we were able to put out a horn, it took a number of months to get that first horn out. But let me tell you, that horn was for horn number one that came out of here. Cliff was like, man, I think that might sound better than my horn. That was rewarding. Now, just because you built one doesn't mean you can build two. <laughs> right. Because <laughs> you built two doesn't mean you can build three. And so we've built a number of horns now, and I'm feeling confident that we are able to replicate 
the Cliff Blackburn uh, experience and the horn, all the way down to the hand engraving. So uh, he taught me how to do his Blackburn hand engraving because I wanted our horn to go out and for you to say, this looks identical and it plays identical. Now we've proven ourselves in that regard. And so that's been rewarding to get through that learning curve. It wasn't pain, it wasn't uh, a cakewalk and it was very painful. But now that we are here and we have this capacity built up now, we have a greater chance of scaling than, than Cliff wanted to do. Cliff's pretty proud of that. And I talk to him regularly and he pokes fun at me, but it's, it's all good. And we have a, a very good relationship. So when it comes to innovation on Blackburn, are you still looking to uh, improve upon that product? Oh, it's sure. already a great product. If you're like, okay, this is the Blackburn legacy, mm-hmm. right? It's like, how do you improve upon that or make yeah. changes and still yeah. have it be Blackburn? Yes. And that is a very good point that you touch on. It's not my intent to say Blackburn was in eh, and now we're going to make it super. Because like you say, for, for what Cliff developed, that's hard to compete with. And I don't think I would bring any value by improving it. Whereas think about where Cliff came, where he grew up. He grew up in an orchestra. Cliff was probably one of the preeminent trumpet players in his time. Just amazing sense, amazing hearing, amazing pitch, all those things, which is why he was able to develop so quickly, in hindsight, all of his stuff. But what Cliff didn't do, he didn't play lead trumpet in a big band. And so most of his line is much more leaning to the classical soloistic side of things. So there's a segment that you can take the Blackburn philosophy and apply it and create whole new lines of horns. So we have some commercial type horns that that leveraged off the Jericho model that he did. Uh, We're working on some new piccolos and I'd like to make a Blackburn flugelhorn, which he never did. We need to bring back the rotary sea trumpets. He made just a few. All of that Blackburn heritage can apply to these other segments, equally successful in my opinion. Other than Vince DiMartino, who's your quality control? <laughs> right? Because, and, and by the way, he's your best, no pun intended, but he's your best mouthpiece, right? <laughs> yes, yes. No, Vince gets very excited and he he's often off the wall in his impressions, right? You catch him one day and he's talking about pitch and he gets all over that. And then the next day he's talking all about tone and timber and, and it's, yeah, it's, it's very interesting to get his perspective. And he's been playing on these horns for a while now. So we get continue to get more and more data. Now, Eric, you talked about Eric. He, he's the play tester as they go out the door. And his job is a consistency tester. And to make sure that we have, let's see, we have uh, 20-something horns of cliffs. Those are the shop masters. So when you played a horn at ITG, you played this one. And oh, wow. you have to make one that plays like that. So Eric's job is to make sure it plays the same. And so going out the door, we know what you're going to get in your hand, uh, which is important. And we catch things where if we made the bell cut wrong for whatever reason, right? We have intonation checks. We have basic checks to make sure that we're not sending anything out the door that Cliff wouldn't send out the door. It just popped into my head. You've got Harrelson, Taylor, these instrument makers that are, they're great instruments, but visually, right? The aesthetic, they're making instruments that are works of art. Yes. Yes. Is there, do you have any designs on doing something like that? Or are you just going to stick to the, the basic? Yeah. So Cliff and I talked about that at length about his opinion on where he might diversify on the look. And he was very much a traditionalist out of the gate. 
So there are a few unique things about Cliff's horn. So he has a finger ring, a pinky ring, as opposed to a pinky hook. He believes in the rings on those. Uh, but for the most part, it is very traditional. Now, there are varying philosophies and opinions on what heavy bracing or different bracing does to a horn. And there is no doubt that the horn is moving when you're playing that. Uh, part of that is the experience that we expect. We exist in a very traditional art form. A whiz-bang trumpet comes out. Why doesn't everybody go out and buy that trumpet now? Because it's the latest thing and it's different. We just don't do that. And there are great examples of uh, people working with the Chicago Symphony. They're playing some super old Bach trumpets that leak, that have loose pistons, that are dented. They've been worked on a hundred times. They are not the most efficient instrument out there. And yet they continue to play on them. And why is that? There's a tradition of sound. There's an expectation of feeling that we resonate with. We don't mind inefficiency. It makes me feel more comfortable. So on. So why do we live in old houses? I like the story. I like, I just like how it feels to me. There are more efficient houses to live in, but we don't move, right? There are, it's complicated, but Cliff believes in that traditional look and that traditional weight. And his Ambrons, the A24 bell, heavier uh, Ambrons bell, it is heavier than tradition, but it comes at a very key purpose. It's a projection and it's not overly heavy. And so he believed in shooting right down the middle and having the design of the horn acoustically be far superior and, and where it's at as opposed to visually. I'm thinking about the engraving. <clears throat> when you do that, do you secretly hide a uh, Peter Pickett inside the engraving? <laughs> I could engrave on the inside of the bell, Peter was here, and then Greg would go <laughs> make the bell and you'd never know. That's a good idea. I should do that. Right, then you would know. So now I'm, I'm going to get some. I'm going to get some kickback on that, right? Yeah. You have to cut yeah. the horn open though to find out which one it is. Oh gosh, then yeah, forget it. Yeah. So this is this has been great. I know so little about the manufacturing side of things, and which is fine. There are people like you who do know that and care about it and produce great stuff. It's and I'm not even one of these guys who can talk about bore size and throat size. I just know if it sounds good, if it feels good. And that's where people like you and, and Eric and Carl have been so helpful and the Shires people so helpful in finding the right equipment is just like, I don't know what size, but here's what I want to sound like. Yeah. And you put something in my hands and I'm like, hey, that's it. Yeah. Feels good. Sounds good. Mm -hmm. Is good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thankful for people like you that can, that have the mind to operate and, and not just operate this way, but actually on a machine, actually create this stuff. You mentioned you, you acquired Blackburn in 2016. You met with him in 2010. But now I'm curious, when did you actually start Picket Brass? So that started in 2003, like I said, with the buttons. We started mouthpieces in, I think, 2007. So again, the, the trim side was interesting, and there was a business there. But our first ITG at Amherst, Massachusetts, I, there were some cute colored buttons, but that was it. And yeah, it... The trumpet thing really took me by surprise. Mouthpieces are one thing, but to go through the all the processes it takes to make a horn, oh man, I mean that, if we had tried to do that out of the gate, we wouldn't be here because it was too much. Yeah. So for instance, when we purchased Blackburn in 2016, he was still using pistons from Canstall, the pistons themselves. Mm -hmm. He acquired those. There was no reason for him to make them with what he had in his shop. And so we said, we'll continue that. 
Well, then of course, cancel folded. And so that was a little bit scary. We had a little bit of stock, but we didn't have a lifetime supply. And Cancel wasn't going to make us a lifetime supply. And so that was a wonderful incremental, again, it looks nice in hindsight, an incremental opportunity to now make our own piston. Well, that's what we did last year. So we learned how to make pistons and now we make our own pistons. And, you know, that's not an insignificant exercise. And thankfully, (laughs) we didn't have to do that at the same time as making bells, brazing bow clusters, making slides, all that together would have killed us. And so some of these opportunities and situations are very timely and have worked out very well for us. Uh, You mentioned Canstall. I have a Canstall B-flat AG Piccolo you know, different slides, different bells for each key and, and different lead pipes. And my B flat lead pipe got stuck in there. <laughs> and like an idiot, I, I used a pair of pliers, Oh yeah, yeah. but, but not on the receiver part. It was on, and I just crushed the brass. It was so soft anyways. And I'm just <laughs> like, I'm embarrassed to, to say that, but I called Fred and told him, cause I think he had been part of the design team for that horn. <laughs> And so he's, yeah, I'm thinking I, so now I don't have a B flat lead pipe. So I, I may actually send what's left of that to you and sure. <laughs> see if you can build me a, a new one on that. But yep. I, I promise if that happens, I promise to never use uh, pliers on my <laughs> trumpet ever again. But this has been great. There's a lot more we could talk about. Maybe we'll come back in a year or so and talk about where things are with with the company and and where we are as musicians if we and, still and, have and a livelihood future hell we can't predict next week and or the week after it's this is a nutty time and i am thankful that we have these walls to come into and to pretend like everything's normal for a few hours a day i, th- yeah. I think that's super important to find a little safe place like that so that we do live to see another day and they go to another midwest and a tmea and itg for that matter yes yeah, thank you uh, for being here today. This, this has been great. Next time we'll get together and we'll talk about what Vince really likes to do when he comes to, comes to the shop there. All right, hopefully we'll see each other in person at some point. But in the meantime, please stay healthy. Very good. You do the same. Thank you for having me. You bet. Take care. Right. Thanks. See Bye-bye. Well, that's it for today's show. If you'd like to help out with the show, here are two ways you can do that. One, To get exclusive bonus coverage and other benefits while helping me to continue to produce this type of content, you can become a Patreon patron today at patreon.com slash studiohfl. And this would be a huge favor to me to help the show grow. Please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. I would greatly appreciate that. That's it for today's show, and now here's Aaron Rom to take us out. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Tune in next week for another great interview. And one last reminder that you can help support this podcast by becoming a subscriber at patreon.com slash studiohfl. Your support would be most appreciated. And another special thanks to Messina Covers, the Eastman Music Company, and Pickett Blackburn for their support of this podcast. Thanks again. Now, go practice. <laughs>